The Coram Deo Church Community is a missional church rooted in historic, biblical Christianity and committed to cultural engagement. We hope the message you're about to hear spurs you to deeper reflection on the gospel of Jesus Christ. Thanks for listening. This morning's scripture reading is James chapter 3, verses 1 through 12. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. For we all stumble in many ways, and if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. The word of God for the people of God. Hey, you know what's amazing about you? You're here. I mean, there's people around you doing all kinds of other things on a Sunday morning. And you're one of those people who has chosen to get yourself out of bed and get ready and show up here on a Sunday morning, I assume, because you think God is real and you care what God has to say. And I just want to say that's, that's really great. It's really amazing and really commendable. Um, and I want to remind you, the only thing that actually matters is what's true. We're, we're not, it doesn't do us any good to be here if all we're doing is perpetuating a religious tradition. We're, we're not here because it feels good to be here. We're not here because we sort of pat ourselves on the back that we got out of bed and did something meaningful this morning. The only thing that really matters is is the thing we're here talking about and singing about and celebrating actually true? Is the gospel message actually true? Does God actually exist? Has God actually spoken in his word? That's what really matters. And that's really the only thing that matters for our lives at the end of the day. Um, one of the reasons that I am a Christian is because I find in the Bible such a profound understanding of human beings, and of human life, and of human existence. 
And this passage in the book of James is one of those passages that names something that all of us sense and all of us intuitively know, but rarely can we put words to it. James and the Holy Spirit through James puts words to it in a profound and powerful way. Many of you as kids learn the little nursery rhyme, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words will never hurt me, right? And, and we teach that little nursery rhyme to kids as a way of helping them be resilient against those who would critique them or insult them or the bully on the playground that says something mean, right? It's a, it's a good strategy for resilience to have something to say in those moments. But you also know that in a very deep way, that nursery rhyme is not actually true, right? Like in your life, I am confident that there are words that have hurt you. And even worse I'm also confident that you've probably used words to hurt other people. Like the profound thing about what James is saying to us is that every one of us, every one of us in this room is both victim and perpetrator, right? We have been wounded by the words of others and we've used our words in hurtful ways. And so this morning, God has much to say to us and we have much to learn about the importance of our words. This passage, if you were to say, what is this text in James about? The answer is really obvious. It's about the tongue. It's about our words, our speech. And so uh, last week I gave you an assignment to prepare you for this message. And the assignment was this, for seven days, do not gossip, complain, criticize, boast, or defend yourself. How did you do? <laughs> he said, terrible. It's, all right, well, me too. Uh, but, but the assignment kind of has two goals, right? Goal number one is to make you more aware of your speech and your words. There's something about when we're actually attending to this and trying to pay attention to how these things play out in our lives, we just see more clearly what's actually there. So goal number one is just to make you aware of your speech and your words and how much they matter. Goal number two of that assignment is to re reveal to you um, what Richard Lovelace, who's a theologian and writer, calls your characteristic flesh. The flesh is the Bible's way of talking about that part of you that's, that's shaped by indwelling sin and fallenness. And Richard Lovelace says, look, we all sin, but also you sin in ways that are particular to you. So to apply this passage, right, we all sin with our words, but there's ways you sin with your words that are particular to who you are. And there are probably some of these assignments, some of those pieces of that assignment that are more challenging and difficult for you. Ways that you recognize the ways that you sin with your words in a particular way. So if this passage of scripture has its intended effect this morning, what should happen is you should feel desperate for change. You should feel in a deeper way your helplessness, your need for the grace of God, and a growing sense of conviction that the way you ought to speak is not the way you do speak. There's a need for growth here. Um, if anyone this morning walks out after hearing this passage, you're like, yeah, that, didn't really, that really didn't really have much to say to me. I, I just don't know that there's another passage in the Bible that you should show up to hear preached. 
Uh, this is one that's just like, this is the passage of, of everything the Bible has to say. This one implicates all of us powerfully. Um, you know, part of my goal in preaching is always just to apply the text to myself first. And as I've been reading through the Gospel of James, my, my Gospel community will tell you this. The thing, th- this passage is the one that I'm just like, man, this, all of James is important. All of James speaks the Word of God to me, but this is the one for me that I think is most convicting. And the reason is because I use a lot of words, right? My job requires me to use words. But I'm just also a verbal kind of person. And if you ask my wife, if you ask my kids, if you ask people who work with me, hey, you know, what are sort of the characteristic sins of Bob Thune? Many of them would be sins of the tongue, of speech, of words, right? Um, You know, like, we have that joke around here that the way you relate to me as a boss is like, if you don't hear anything, assume you're doing fine, right? Because when you hear something is when you're not doing fine. I, I'm very good with words when I want to critique, criticize, have something constructive to offer. Not so verbal when it's just like, hey, you're doing a great job. Um, and so I see that to be true about myself. And what James is saying here, first of all, convicts me. And I trust it convicts all of us as well. So here's the deal. I don't have an outline for this morning because I don't think the passage needs one. Um, the, the language and the imagery and the flow of the passage is so powerful and so instructive. We're just going to walk through it together in the hopes that we can discover what God wants to say to us about our speech, our tongue, our mouths, and then that we can find the hope that the gospel offers for this part of our being. So would you Join me quickly in a word of prayer as we prepare to look at this passage. Our Father, we always are here in need of your grace. And we sense our need of your grace even more this morning as we just think about the past seven days of our lives. The ways which with our speech we have dishonored you and dishonored others. So make us attentive this morning to your word. Teach us what you want us to hear and see and know and impress upon us the power of your grace to change us in the deepest places of our lives and of our souls that we might bring you glory and that we might be a more beautiful people who more fully display your glory to the world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, James chapter 3, verse 1. It begins like this. Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Obviously, this first verse is primarily addressed to people like me who would teach in the church. Some of you who aspire to pastoral ministry or who want to function as teachers, these words are for you. These words are for you if you ever teach in Cormdale Kids, if you ever lead a Bible study with other human beings, if you ever lead family devotions, these words should resonate with you because all of those are functions of teaching. But if we ask, why is this warning here? It points us to something even more profound, and that is the great weightiness of words. Like what James is saying is if you teach, if you use words to instruct other people, you should be slow to take that responsibility because you'll be judged with greater strictness because the things you say, people are going to do something with. So it's pointing us to the great power and the weightiness of our 
words of our speech, not just speech that instructs people about God, but all types of speech. Think about this with me. This is really fascinating. The first sin following the fall was a sin of speech. God comes to Adam in the garden. Adam says, Genesis 3, verse 12, the woman that you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. The very first thing that happens is blame shifting, defensiveness. It's a sin of speech. The very first sin after the fall. When the Apostle Paul, in this great chapter in Romans 3, wants to establish the universality of sin, when he's trying to convince you, hey, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God, what does he point to? Points to sins of the tongue, Romans 3, 13 and 14. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asps is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Saying this is what's true of human beings. And by the way, these are all quotes from the Psalms. Paul's not like vamping on new theology here. He's just quoting the Old Testament saying, here's how we know that sin is everywhere because human beings have lips that are full of cursing and bitterness and venom. When the prophet Isaiah encounters God in all of his holiness, the first thing he recognizes about himself is this. I am a man of unclean lips and I live among people of unclean lips. And when the Apostle Peter paints for us a vision of what it means to love life and see good days, he says, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. That's Peter's description of a good life. I mean, just think about how much emphasis the Bible puts on speaking. Alec Mateer, who's an Irish theologian says this, we rarely stand alongside Genesis or Paul in finding in our speech the primary evidence of our fallen state. We do not share Isaiah's sense that here is a sin which in a special way separates us from God and brings us to condemnation. Nor has anyone ever told us that a controlled tongue is the key to blessing. When James says to us, we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. He's reminding us of the great importance and significance of words. He's carrying up all this biblical teaching about speech and words and saying, hey, what you say matters. Verse 2, for we all stumble in many ways. Amen? And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, able also to bridle his whole body. I love this verse for two reasons. Number one, because it's encouraging. Hey, we all stumble in many ways. Have a realistic view of yourself, okay? Have a realistic view of the progress of growth in Christlikeness. We all stumble in many ways. If anyone doesn't stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man. Right? So the, the one place every one of us is going to be able to see our sin clearly is in our speech. And the flip side of this is also... This is the place you can be looking to see encouraging evidence of sanctification. How do you know that you're actually being changed by the grace of God in Christ? Well, one of the ways you know is because you see it in your speech. Are you becoming less critical, less defensive, more encouraging, more hopeful? The, the word perfect here 
is the Greek word telos, which means completion. It's the same word that James has already used in chapter 1, verse 4, where he said, let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete. And in verse 25 of chapter 1, where James calls God's law the perfect law, the law of liberty. So in other words, verse 2 is not just telling you, hey, the way you know you're not perfect is because you stumble in what you say. It's also telling you the journey of sanctification is a journey toward more hopeful and life-giving speech. This is a place where you can be encouraged as you see the Spirit of God changing and transforming you. Now, with this image of a bridle, James is going to shift us into another set of reflections about the tongue. Look at verse 3. If we put bits into the mouths of horses so that they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look at the ships also. Though they are so large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. So you see the lesser to greater argument, right? A bit is something small, which directs something very large. A rudder is something small, which directs something very large. Likewise, the tongue is something very small that has the capacity to direct something very large. The phrase in verse 5, it boasts of great things, sounds negative to us because we think of boasting. But a better way of understanding this phrase is just that it's saying the tongue is physically small, but what tremendous effect it can boast of. Here's a profound point that James is making. If you master your tongue, you can master your whole body. All of us are aware of powerful impulses and appetites within us, right? How can we bring our bodies under the control and authority of Christ? How do we master the powerful forces within us? James says, start by mastering the tongue. If you master the tongue, you can master the whole body. When we bought this building that you're sitting in uh, three years ago now, I was handed a box of keys. I'm talking like 75 or 80 keys, some of which were labeled, many of which were not. And so I literally spent, I don't know, hours of a day walking around with this box of keys and just trying them in all the doors being like, what key does this open? And then writing on, okay, this is the key to the janitorial closet and this is the key to the three-year-old classroom, right? And just like trying to keep track of what all these keys were. This building has, was, was constructed over like 30 years and I don't think they had the same locksmith do any of the work anywhere. And so, man, there was a lot of keys. But as we moved in and as we took possession, there's, uh, there's one key on my key ring. It's this one with the orange thing around it. Because that's my little reminder to myself that this is the master key, at least to the extent that there is one for this building. This is the key that opens most of the doors in this building. And so I have the orange tag on it just to remind me, hey, this is the one that'll get you in almost any room. If you're locked out, if you're looking to get someplace in this building, this key is the master key. And if you've ever been in a place that has a lot of locks, you probably are familiar with the idea of a master key, even though now you just have it on your phone and it's just like an app and then you've got to download an update for it so you can get into your doors. I don't like that. I just want to use the key, all right? 
That's what this passage is saying. Listen again to Alex, Alec Matir. This is a really fascinating observation he makes. The tongue is so much more than what we actually say out loud. In fact, actual speech is probably only a small percentage of the use of the tongue. We cannot think without formulating thoughts in words. We cannot plan without describing to ourselves step by step what we intend to do. We cannot resent without fueling the fires of resentment in words addressed to ourselves. We cannot feel sorry for ourselves without listening to the self-pitying inner voice. But if our tongue were so well under control that it refused to formulate the words of self-pity, the images of lustfulness, the thoughts of anger and resentment, then these things are cut down before they have a chance to live. The control of the tongue is more than an evidence of spiritual maturity. It is the means to it. You want to control the ship of your life? Start with the rudder of your tongue, James is saying. Do you want to steer your whole being into a life of holiness? Start by dealing with the words that you tell yourself. This is an important point because it's a contrast. It's essentially the other side of the coin of the famous words that we all know from Jesus, right? When he said, out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We all understand, hey, your words come from somewhere. Your, your tongue is just an overflow of what's in you. So Jesus said, hey, when, when you have cursing and bitterness coming out of you, that's a reflection of what's in you. That's a reflection of what's present in your heart. And that's true. And it's also true what James is saying, that the beginning point of sanctification is beginning to deal with our words, our speech, our tongue. This observation has, has the power to really be transformative for how you think about growth in your walk with God. I was walking alongside a young man a few years ago, just trying to walk with him out of some habitual patterns of sexual sin. And he would say to me, man, I just keep ending up in these situations and I find myself powerless. And you know what that's like. You've been there, right? Where you're far enough, you're deep enough into a situation. It's like, I, I sort of have lost all my resolve. But I started asking him questions about how he got into those situations in the first place. How did you find yourself alone with that person? How did you end up in that situation? And you know what the answer always was? It started with some words. You don't just end up, no one just ends up in a situation. It starts with a text message or with a conversation or with some words that lead you into the moment where now you feel like, oh, I'm powerless. But as I begin to make him reckon with, no, 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 you didn't just find yourself in a situation. Your words got you into a situation. It changed the battle he was trying to fight. Because he realized, I'm fighting the wrong battle. The battle isn't this thing over here, this moment I'm in. The battle is in the words that got me here in the first place. That's what James is saying. He's saying, you start to control your words, your speech, your thoughts, your tongue. You can control your whole body. This is the rudder that directs the ship. Now, this small to great connection now sets up the next part 
of the text. Verse 5, how great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting, the cor- setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. This is just the flip side of the previous argument, right? If the tongue has the power to steer the ship of our lives, the tongue also has the power to crash the ship of our lives, doesn't it? The tongue can set on fire the entire course of life. I well remember one Christmas as a child. We had a bunch of family in town. We had enjoyed a, a great evening and uh, a pleasant meal, a nice warm fire in the fireplace. It was one of those nights like we had last weekend, not bitterly cold yet, but cold enough that a fire in the fireplace is just the right ambiance, right? So before bed, we tamped out the fire and some folks started doing dishes and cleaning up the house. And my uncle Tim served us by shoveling the ashes out of the fireplace and putting them in a trash can. About 1 a.m., I awoke to a blaring fire alarm and a ton of commotion among the adults in the house. The garage was full of smoke, and you know what had happened, right? Those ashes had caught fire in the trash can. And thankfully, no one was injured, and the only real casualty was some lost sleep and a melted trash can. Um, A fire in the fireplace is warm and welcoming. A fire in the garage can burn your house down right? Likewise, the tongue can bring warmth and life and blessing, or it can burn your life down. Now, let's be honest about the language here. It's a little dramatic, isn't it? I mean, James is kind of going overboard here, right? I don't think so. Do you remember that moment in the Gospel of Matthew? I mean, remember, everything James writes sort of banks on his experiences living life alongside Jesus. Do you remember that story in the Gospel of Matthew when Peter pulls Jesus aside and speaks to him and Jesus responds, get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You think Jesus was exaggerating in that moment? See, Peter's words were well-meaning and well-intentioned, weren't they? He wasn't cursing at Jesus. He wasn't lying. He wasn't slandering anyone. But his tongue at that moment was set on fire by hell. Jesus in that moment observed that Peter was speaking words to him that were not in keeping with God's agenda, but rather with the agenda of Satan. Peter's words were an instrument of Satan to entice Jesus to disobedience. I wonder how much more careful we would be with our speech if we really believed that the great battle between good and evil is played out through our speech. I mean, if someone broke out in a flurry of curse words at your gospel community this week, most of you would be, you know, a little taken aback. Maybe you might say, can we pray for you for a minute, Right? But how often do we sit back as someone gossips about another Christian or slanders a church leader or offloads all of their bitterness and resentment towards someone else in the church body? And see, all of that is the fires of hell looking away at the church. James is not exaggerating. He wants you to see the line between good and evil runs right through your heart 
and right through your mouth. Verse 7, for every kind of beast and bird, of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it we bless our Lord and Father, and with it we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. Does a spring pour forth from the same opening, both fresh and salt water? Can a fig tree, my brothers, bear olives, or a grapevine produce figs? Neither can a salt pond yield fresh water. You may remember all the way back in chapter 1 when James introduced us to the theme or the idea of double-mindedness. You remember that? The person who doubts is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways, a man who's facing two ways at the same time, a man who has two opinions at the same time, a man who can't make up his mind how he really wants to live and who he really wants to follow. James is bringing back that same idea applied here to the tongue. He's saying, hey, you have one mouth. And with that one mouth, you stand here and bless our Lord and Father on Sunday morning, and then you curse other human beings who are made in God's image. From the same mouth come blessing and cursing, my brothers, these things ought not to be so. And we all agree, these things ought not to be so. We don't want to be double-tongued. We don't want to be people who both bless and curse. We realize this is not the way that God intended us to be. What if, instead of being double-tongued, you spoke only words of blessing and life? What if, instead of the same spring producing both fresh and salty water, what poured forth from your mouth was life-giving, fresh water? What if, even when you had to oppose evil in the world and in other people, you did so in a way that was full of integrity and joy and hope? Well, friends, the good news is there is one who lived like that. There was one perfect man who did not stumble in what he said. Peter tells us about it, 1 Peter chapter 2. Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Notice three simple things about what Peter says in these few verses. First of all, notice the emphasis he puts on the purity and wholeness of Christ's speech. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When suffered, he did not threaten. He's pointing to the words Jesus spoke and saying, your Savior, when he was beaten and bloodied and cursed, said nothing. And in that saying of nothing is his beauty and his glory and his goodness. He didn't revile in return. He spoke words of blessing and life. Second, notice the theme of both forgiveness and healing. He says, he himself bore our sins in his body on the tree. That's forgiveness. That we might die to sin and live to righteousness by his wounds, you have been healed. Jesus can both forgive our sin 
the ways we misuse our words and tear others down with our speech, and he can heal our wounds. The places where the words of others have shamed us, have wounded us, have damaged us. Jesus can heal both. And notice finally the theme of empowerment, right? Why did Jesus do all of this? So that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. There's a hopeful vision, a positive trajectory of what we get to be and do in light of what Jesus has done for us. Because of what God has done in Jesus, there's hope for our tongues and for our whole body as well. And James points us to this hope in verse 8. Look again at verse 8 of chapter 3. This is the key verse. This is the verse that unlocks the whole passage. No human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil, full of deadly poison. No human being. That's the key. Your tongue is poison, friend. It's fire. It's a world of iniquity. It will not be tamed by any human power. It will not be tamed by the strongest willpower, the best discipline, the most diligent engagement on your part. But there is one way it can be tamed. And that's by the transforming, life-giving power of the Holy Spirit. No human being can tame the tongue, but that's the point. The point is, the taming of the tongue requires a power outside of you and beyond us. As we've already seen, the very first sin after the fall was a sin of speech. Adam blaming Eve. God, this woman that you gave me, it's all her fault. Well, think with me, friends, along the trajectory of redemptive history. What was the very first gift after the resurrection? It was the gift of transformed speech, wasn't it? Acts chapter 2, the church is together. Suddenly there's a sound like a mighty rushing wind and tongues of fire descend upon them. And we like to focus on what was the gift of tongues? Was it like the ability to evangelize in different languages? Or was it some like supernatural Holy Spirit thing? What was the gift and how does the gift function today? And you know what we never think about? The fact that it was a tongue. The gift has to do with speech. They were all filled with the Holy Spirit, Acts 2 says, and what it did was it changed how they spoke. That's the majesty. That's the beauty. And Peter says in Acts chapter 2, oh yeah, this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel when he said, in the last days, I, God, will pour out my spirit on all flesh. That's what's happening right now. Pouring out of the Spirit. Here's the point, friends. The Spirit of God can change how you speak. The Spirit of God is good news for your tongue. No human being can tame the tongue, but you better believe the gracious Holy Spirit of God can. And that Holy Spirit is a gift to you and me from our Savior, Jesus Christ, who has died for our sin, risen from the dead, ascended back to the Father's throne so that you might die to sin and live to righteousness, not in your own power, but by the power of his gracious gift. 
And that's what James wants us to seek and long for. In verse 10, when he says, my brothers, my brothers and sisters, these things ought not to be so. What he wants you to do is to say, yeah, this has to change. This ought not to be so. From one mouth should not come blessing and cursing. What he wants you to long for is the filling and the presence and the transforming power and the grace of the Holy Spirit in your life to change how you speak and what you say and how you use your tongue. No human being can tame the tongue. James wants you to stop trying to tame it. He wants you to nod in agreement when he says these things ought not to be so. He wants you to realize how confusing it is that from the same spring comes both fresh and bitter water. And he wants you to see that the invitation from God is to be submitted to the filling and power and presence of the Holy Spirit so that it can change what you say and how you say it. You will not tame the tongue, but the Spirit of God can. So listen. In a moment, in a moment, I'm going to give you a few minutes of silence in prayer to identify your sins of the tongue and to bring them before God and to repent and believe, to turn from them, to acknowledge them, to ask for God's grace to change them. And then after we pray, we're going to use our tongues to sing to God and we're going to come to the Lord's table. And I don't want you to forget that when we come to the Lord's table to eat bread and drink wine, that's something we do with our mouth. And I want you to focus this morning on that bread touching your tongue. That wine hitting your taste buds. And I want you to realize that what God is saying to you in that is, this is what my grace wants to do to this part of your body. I have grace to bring to your tongue, to your mouth, to your words. You're not alone in this struggle. I am here with you. And just as this is coming into your body and being ingested through your mouth, so my grace comes to you in and through the gospel to change you. Friends, that's good news. So let's come acknowledging our need for that good news this morning. Let's take a few minutes to pray together. I want to invite you to bow your head and just acknowledge before God the sins of your tongue and ask for his grace to change them. Father, we bring ourselves before you. Would you meet each of us in the places in our speaking where we are most aware of our sin, of our foolishness, and of our selfishness? Come, Holy Spirit, 
and blow your wind freshly through the depths of our soul in ways that transform our speech. Make us more aware this morning of our inadequacy to change ourselves. Help us die to our best strategies for discipline. And help us long more deeply for the kind of encounter and experience with you that can transform the words we use and don't use, the things we do and don't do with our mouths and our speech. Make us vessels fit for your habitation and turn our tongues into instruments of blessing and life and righteousness for our good and for your glory. Amen.